innovators are helping society tackle some of our biggest challenges, even challenges that may not be easily recognized. For instance, tech innovators behind the scenes of Hollywood studios are investing in new ways to identify unconscious bias in scripts before movies even get made. They're using AI to change the storylines around race, gender, and ethnicity by performing in-depth data analysis of language and characters. Welcome to the Element Podcast. I'm Janice Sankis, Vice President of Innovation for Social Impact at Hewlett Packard Enterprise. Each episode this season focuses on a different path in the journey towards digital equity. And today we're exploring designing for inclusion. The big question, if we can engineer a self-driving car or program a telescope a million miles from Earth to explore distant galaxies, how can we innovate to make an equitable society? I explored this with today's guest, Eves Burquist. He's the director of the AI and Neuroscience and Media Project at USC's Entertainment Technology Center and CEO of the AI engineering firm Novamente. Eve's described for me the next frontier of art and technology, where AI analyzes half a million movie scripts to contextualize the treatment of race, gender, and ethnicities in new scripts. Here's our conversation. Welcome, Eve. Thanks for joining me today. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure. So we're continuing our conversation around tech innovation, and I'm curious, how much effort do you think is focused on innovating to advance inclusion? I would say quite a bit. We were starting to experiment with machine learning tools to understand bias and stereotypes at a much deeper level. And we're starting to see some interesting experiments around using natural language processing to really understand the emotions around and the archetypes of certain minority characters. So I would say the media industry is is very, very, very focused on this and making big investments. Is this, you know, is this magic or is this science? Are you using artificial intelligence techniques to objectively analyze this kind of information? It's science, but science is not magic. (laughs) Right. We're using natural language processing to try to understand stereotypes at a much deeper level. So I think a lot of the work that's been done, which is obviously important, is looking at how diverse your cast and crew is, but what we wanted to do was we wanted to go deeper. We wanted to see, okay, how stereotypical is your minority character? To do that, you have to dig into more semantic dimensions of content. We analyze the language and we look at the emotions behind the language and we're able to create these representations of emotional tonalities, emotional journeys, emotional arcs, uh, emotional archetypes of various character sets. And we're able to tell you how close or distant a certain minority character is from a pool of minority characters that have been tagged as stereotypical. So we say, hey, your female African-American lead is a little bit too close to the black woman stereotype. The idea is to give writers and creatives signals and tools to be able to try to understand stereotype and bias in a very imperfect manner. This is not a perfect tool, but this is a reference point that everybody can talk about. It's a language that's rooted in data. We're trying to take, like, I think that out of the equation as much as we can. You mentioned that you compare to historical stereotypes. Who decides you know, what's a stereotype? And is there human judgment involved in that? Or is it completely automated? We're just starting this project. But the intent is to have a committee of people go through a set of characters and discuss how stereotypical they are. And we're hoping that through this collegial approach, we'll have a a fairly good, robust consensus 
on what constitutes a, a stereotype or not. And all of that is, is data-driven, right? We can cluster characters by emotions pretty easily. And so we look at this cluster, what, what the pattern in this cluster, oh, it's Asians are geeky and good at science and stuff like that. And so this conversation in and of itself, I think, is, is really cool. And the fact that we're using data to have it, even if we don't build anything on top of that, I think is cool and interesting. I know at the ETC at USC, you're working with many major media companies. Are you finding that they're interested in knowing this information? Companies are always interested in innovation. They're really large organizations that are a mishmash of different cultures. And in any large organization, innovation is going to be something that requires effort. And Hollywood was no different than a car company, right? It's the same thing. Increasingly, studios want to have data-driven signals that can help them accelerate the conversation around what story is this? Because right now, this conversation is Peter and Paul and Sarah in a room who are having a conversation about, I think that this, I think that that. And there's just a lot of frustration around this very human, very biased, actually, process of assessing narrative. What we're doing is we're not removing the human from the equation. We're, again, creating a language and data-driven signals that make this conversation a lot more effective and also expand it. Because a lot of the time when we're analyzing scripts and we're analyzing narrative structure, the emotional channels of the characters, and we're coming up with comparables, a lot of those comparables were not evident to the people in the room. And so we're expanding their own creative instinct because obviously no executive can hold a half million scripts in memory. We have a half million scripts in our database. That scale in and of itself is is really valuable. Would you have an example of an analysis that you've run that illustrated an intent to create a stereotype that maybe the producer didn't really intend? I have an example of working with news organizations to identify bias in their news coverage. So we're part of the IBC Accelerator for, for 2021, and is sponsored by, by big news organizations like AP, Reuters, BBC. And what we did is we analyzed the, the emotional tonality and the contents of their coverage about Afghanistan. And we included companies like Fox News and MSNBC as well, who are not part of the Accelerator, but we wanted to have some sort of more ideological coverage. And we found some really interesting stuff. The coverage of the Black Lives Matter movement by all these organizations uh, in terms of how what emotions were dominant in that coverage pretty much tracks with what you would think that Fox News versus Al Jazeera versus MSNBC treats Black Lives Matter. So we were pleasantly surprised to see that the tool applies also to news coverage, not just to entertainment. We don't tell organizations what to do. We just give them signals that we hope are helpful to augment their human decisions with more context and more data. I'm curious, what made the ETC think about using this process for this purpose? ETC is a great thing because it has the freedom of academia and it has the accountability of industry. So we have the freedom to fail and experiment. And so my training through AI came uh, through a group of people who for a long time has been advocating using a variety of completely different methods together in hybrid architectures. It's not just machine learning, it's also algebraic topology, it's also information theories, and you know, we use, we use a lot of elements of sciences and methods that 
are non-traditional in, in artificial intelligence. And we found that this diversity of models, this diversity of methodologies really is the magic behind the stuff that we're doing. And the reason we're doing things that are unique that nobody else is doing is because we go far beyond the traditional machine learning approach. If you think about the human brain, the human brain uses a variety of different methodologies to solve problems. And so what we wanted to do is create sort of a machine brain that similarly would draw upon the strength of a variety of different methodologies to be able to solve a very concrete problem. We're very problem-driven because we're an industry group. I think it's interesting to note that in order to successfully build out the technology for doing this kind of analysis, you have to have access to very disparate, very distributed, decentralized sets of data, in your case, very large sets of data. And that requires the ability to exchange data and share data. At the end of the day, the obstacle to any innovation is always organization. As you're putting together training sets, for example, across different studios, because no single studio can successfully train machine learning models like computer vision models on just their content. They need the content from the other studios. A big part of what we do is trying to facilitate that Creating that trust, creating that place where this content can be exchanged and there's accountability, there's a, just a, a gazillion technical problems to solve there. Creating that space is critical. And in, in a way, it is the most critical piece of the entire architecture. Because if you don't have that, you have nothing else. The hardest thing is to get a bunch of really big organizations to trust one another. And so if you have a system to do that, then that's really as close to the holy grail as you can get, because then you can scale your training sets across different organizations. Then your life as a data scientist and AI researcher is a lot easier because you have these massive training sets versus having to deal with partial data, which is always dicey. It seems that work like this tied to media and something that we experience and see as consumers has a great opportunity for addressing digital equity. Are there some particular problems that you see from your research where this technology could actually make a difference? We're starting to work on this. One of our big projects is to create a machine language for, for content and basically create an ad that can watch movies and really understand what they're about. If you create the ability to understand how stories are being told in text, visually, in music, through editing, through composition, through shot types, through visual style, and you can tie it back to audience reactions and what happens in their brain, literally, then you're as close as you can get to a tool that can very granularly surface and measure bias in narrative, in all narratives. Narratives drive our entire life, not just outside of ourselves, but inside of ourselves. And suddenly, if you can create the ability to parse it out as objectively as possible, because that's, that's a whole question in and of itself, then you have a, a kind of data-driven self-assessment tool of your own narratives, the narratives that you see in media, and you're able to have a very structured view of your own biases and your own narrative. And that's kind of, at the end of the day, that's what we want to do, right? We want to invent a machine language that can sort of immediately make people understand individually and also collectively what their narrative looks like and how close or far it is from the reality. Are you thinking that we would use or companies would use this kind of information or this kind of tool or analysis 
at the beginning of projects so that you can design what you're about to say and your narrative and your visualizations with equity in mind? We would love to invent something or build something that would help organizations or individuals tell their story in a way that resonates the most with people. If we can optimize the narrative around personal health, around equity, around kindness, I think this is really, really powerful. You have like a lot of creators on TikTok who tell extremely compelling narratives of selfishness and, and violence. We'd love to be able to understand these narratives on a much more granular level so we can be as effective as spreading equity and inclusivity as some people are at spreading hate. As a listener or a, wa- a viewer of you know these uh, media examples, I would kind of like to know ahead of time when I'm going to go watch something, whether I'm watching something that's inherently and grossly biased. Sometimes bias is the point. So we don't, so let's just make it clear. Like we don't tell organizations what to do. We don't tell studios, this is a good script or this is a bad script. We don't do that. Mm-hmm. Right? What we're saying is this is your script in the universe of scripts. And this is how close or far to the zeitgeist it is. And this is how interesting it's projected to be for people based on the superposition of elements in your script that are canonical in the genre and elements of novelty, right? Mm -hmm. We don't want to talk about bias because it's really not our business. Like that's really, we give people and organizations signals to then assess their own biases and decide what they want to do. We give them scale, we give them math, we give them quantitative data about qualitative stuff that they couldn't talk about quantitatively. Like, you know, studios couldn't say, this is how neurotic this character is. This is the score about how neurotic this person is in the script. They couldn't say that. They could say, well, I think that person is very neurotic. And the other person would say, well, I don't think it's that neurotic. And so you could just have that conversation forever. But then it would say, hey, you, your character is like the score of like 99 on neurotic. They're very neurotic. It's just kind of funny because drama in general relies on like neuroticism and, and really kind of messed up characters. So a lot of characters in Hollywood are actually yeah, highly neurotic, highly depressed, highly type A, highly aggressive. And this is a, in and of itself kind of interesting bias, right? Because we're really kind of being fed uh, characters like day in and day out that are, you know, they should probably should go to therapy. <laughs> so, <laughs> I wonder what influence that has on society, you know? Eve, uh, we've used some examples here around working with major media companies. Is this as applicable to smaller, more independent companies and even advertisers? Yeah, so we don't actually create a difference between narratives. We analyze um, advertising narratives together with film narrators because the audience doesn't make any difference and that's why people just tune out of advertising so much is because frankly advertising pretty much sucks advertising companies have to understand they're in the post game of thrones world if you watch game of thrones and you watch an ad then obviously the ad's gonna suck (laughs) it's just terrible and and i understand advertisers have their own set of constraints i'm not banging on them we actually work with really big brands we actually today are driving Uh, advertising campaigns of really, really big brands we can't really talk about. And and also independence. We worked with the Sundance Institute for a while, really trying to create tools for independence. So the stuff that we do, uh, we want to make it available to everybody. We don't just want to make it available to large studios. The world of indies is definitely more challenging because 
it really is a sort of a pure creative play and it's a, more difficult to tell independent creatives um, to give them feedback on on their work than in a more sort of commercial environment where the goal is to be as successful and reach as many people as possible. I think the, the independent world has a lot of different logic, but we definitely, we know we, we work with the guilds, we work with the WGA. We, uh, we really want everybody to participate in building this with us, right? That's really, really important. Mm-hmm. Great. So thinking about ourselves as listeners uh, or those listening to this podcast, are there some things that listeners can do to kind of support this work or to support innovating for digital equity in the ways that you are and the ETC is? It's a really good question. I don't think technologists and engineers think about this enough. I think it's very important to assess technology with a grain of salt and with, with suspicion. I think I think the best thing that people individually can do in their relationship with technology is to really understand is how good it is, how how effective it is, and what it does, and whether or not it creates value in alignment with their own values. Uh, you know, researchers and engineers will still research; they'll still build things. Some of them are really good for society. Some of them are terrible. The best thing that people can do is educate themselves about technology in in an honest, unbiased way. In their assessment, individually, regardless of politics, regardless of what you think of society, like, is this really, is this technology, is this behavior that this technology is enabling, is this an integrity with who I am? That's really important to me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, fascinating work. And it's uh, really at the forefront of how we can objectively get back into understanding intent, purpose, uh, design for equity. Eve, is there anything else you want to explore in this episode? Something uh, we didn't touch on that would be useful? I want to make sure that people understand that AI is the opposite of magic. It's blood, sweat, and tears. It's very experimental. It's still very unreliable to a large extent. And so you have to be really careful when you when you talk about it. It's done on a very large scale. And that's where it ties in really well with the human mind, because the human mind is extremely nuanced, but doesn't have scale. We understand the difference between I love my children, I love hamburgers, and I love traveling. Machines are not able to make that distinction yet, but we can't hold a half million scripts in our heads and memories. We can't remember every single word in a half million scripts. My passion is to better integrate this data-driven world with the world of humans and the world of creativity and nuance uh, in, the, in the world of art. And that's really what drives me. Well, great. Uh, Eve, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a fascinating set of work that you and the ETC are taking on, and it's interesting to see its applicability to digital equity and inclusion. My pleasure. This is, uh, thank you. This is really fun for me. That's today's show. Thanks for listening. Leave a review or reach out to HPE on Twitter and be sure to subscribe to the Element podcast to hear the rest of this season as we go deep on digital equity. Next time, we'll tackle the issue of democratizing data and look at the impact of decentralizing online information. That's all on the Element podcast from HPE. (laughs) 